and welcome to, wait a second, Calvin, where are we? Well, we're in the recording studio, but this isn't our podcast. I think this is another show on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Oh man, we gotta get out of here. Wait, maybe we should tell them about our show. Hey, that's a swell idea. Our show, Let's Pharmanize, is everything you'd want in a pharmacy podcast. History, pop culture, sex appeal, and humor. We've covered the drug from Linitless, medicine of World War II, the ancient history of birth control, and more. Let's open the vault. Crack that baby open. Does one of the side effects of this medication include a good time? Because... <laughs> yeah, it's E. So there's G-M-A-D and then there's E. E stands for allergies. <laughs> it's like this spider like drapey thing. We have used wet meatloaf five times in this conversation and that is five too many times to use the term wet meatloaf. It's like a round lasagna. I mean, you know, it hurts pretty bad and you're thinking, man, onga bonga, this is pretty bad. <laughs> We post new episodes every Monday. Check out Let's Farmanize on your favorite podcast platform and social media. All that and more on Let's Farmanize. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. When I heard the term CLIA certificates, CLIA waivers, this was back in 2015. I was working with UPMC Enterprises. And we were talking about pharmacogenomics and how the labs we were working with had to be specifically certified, especially to get reimbursed with much of the testing that they were doing. In the US Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments of 1988, CLIA enabled greater access to simple, low-risk tests by allowing their use in facilities such as pharmacies, long-term care facilities, and physician offices. And CLIA waiver tests in these facilities, they must obtain a CLIA, a C-L-I-A certificate of waiver from the U.S. Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services. The reason why this is important is expect diagnostic testing in the hands of the pharmacist and the clinicians that are out there to increase. And so we have to be on top of this. And today I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Jason Osili, and he's uh, no stranger to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome back, Jason. How are you? Thanks, Todd. I'm doing great. And, uh, you know, I'm honored to be alongside uh, two of the most, uh, what I consider top experts in the pharmacy point of care testing world. Uh, I've worked with both uh, Don and Mike for over the past uh, eight years or so in a variety of different ways and largely focused on uh, bringing point of care testing to life in community pharmacy. You know, so since the pandemic, this has really blown up, right? I mean, we've been focused on at FDS AmpliCare trying to uh, help pharmacists overcome barriers, whether it's through technology enablement, um, education, uh, enrollment assistance, including the, the CLIA certificate of waiver, uh, and really just helping them uh, understand the medical billing process. Because that, that definitely helps this uh, helps this service uh, be more scalable long term. Uh, I think I share a goal with with these guys that you know our continue our push is to continue the expansion of CLIA waivers and the point of care testing services that follow well beyond the pandemic uh, and extending into new, new testing categories both diagnostic and chronic care management related um, and while securing you know, equitable payment across all the medical channels. So I'd like to introduce, I mean, Don and Mike, please, uh, please tell us a little bit about your experience. Well, since I'm older and better looking, I will go first. Uh, I'm Mike Klepser, I'm professor of pharmacy at Fair State University College of Pharmacy. Um, I am a pharmacist uh, with training in infectious diseases and I've uh, been working in the area of uh, ClearWave point of care uh, pharmacy-based services uh, probably since about 2007. Don, we'll turn it to you. Okay, so so I'm Don Klepser. I'm the, I'm the younger and apparently more humble of the two brothers. Uh, I am professor and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of Nebraska Medical Center College of Pharmacy. Um, so as Mike mentioned, he's a pharmacist. Actually, our parents are both pharmacists. So it was a family of pharmacists. Um, I thought I had gotten out. Uh, my background is much more business and, and economics. Um, a health economist by training, but I, I've been pulled back into the family business, if you will, um, and really worked 
with Mike probably since 2007 or maybe early 2008 with the perspective of how do we stand this up as not only great clinical service, but as a sustainable model. Um, you know, certainly over our time working together and Jason working with you, you know, most of the most of the question, most of the barriers are not about can pharmacists do this? Do they have the clinical expertise or the knowledge or the training? It, it becomes very much work uh, flow and edgy, um, regulatory. And, you know, the big elephant in the room is, is reimbursement payment. You know, can you do this as a sustainable business model? And so really, I think we bring a unique team together as we've tried to, to move things forward here over the last decade plus. Excellent. Thanks, Don and Mike. Um, so a little bit, you know, we probably have listeners that are on different places on the spectrum of understanding what CLIA waivers are and what point of care testing is. Uh, would, would somebody go into a little bit more detail? I mean, what is a CLIA waiver? Why is it required for point of care testing? And why pharmacy? Why, why is pharmacy uniquely positioned for this? So, Mike, what, I, I'll, I'll go first and you clean up my mess. How about that? I'll be just like when we were kids. Just uh, every single day of my life, yeah. So, right. So, if you're a pharmacy doing CLIA wave testing or, or testing, you're a laboratory. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's, you know, if you're a doctor's office doing it, you're a laboratory. If you're a, a, a public health department, you're a laboratory. So, it's a different set of rules and regulations. I think a lot of people focus on oh, well, you know, I'm a pharmacy. I, I'm already regulated. I work through the board of pharmacy. Well, this is, this is different. And, you know, and as alluded to in the introduction, this comes from 1988 at a time when, um, particularly for HIV testing, it was a little bit of the Wild West. There were some, some false claims, some, some poor standards. Um, you know, people were being tested and told things that weren't accurate. So there was kind of a clampdown on, on laboratories. And really, it's a set of standards. Well, now that said, not every laboratory is a central lab in a hospital. Not every laboratory is doing complex testing and requires, you know, that level of training, that level of expertise. So this carve out was for, you know, this certificate of waiver is for those labs that are saying, you know what, we're going to focus on a subset, a subset of, of tests that can be used at that point of care or closer to the patient. And, you know, the, the, while there's 120 plus different tests, yeah, I think what they all have in common is that they are, they're very simple to use, Right. The risk to the patient is low. And so it makes it pretty easy to do them in a in a place like a pharmacy. But that said, there's still there. You know, there are still some record keeping requirements. There's still some expectations. And, and certainly I'll, be, I'll turn it over to Mike to add something that I think it's also important to remember that that CLIA and that CLIA certificate of waiver is a federal regulation. And so what they set was the floor. And states had the ability, and some took took advantage of that, to, to set a higher floor, to add on um, restrictions, education requirements for who could be a laboratory director, let's say, or for what tests would be considered CLIA waived. Yeah, and so to, to build on that in terms of the why the pharmacy, uh, you know, this became evident to me, you know, again, I was at an influenza meeting in 2007. And this meeting was in Washington, D.C., and one of the keynote speakers was a special assistant to uh, then-President Bush. And he was outlining the uh, nation's disaster preparedness or pandemic response plan. And he and I got talking and realized, really, the plan didn't include pharmacists and how they could play a role. And as we talked, we realized that there was a huge role that pharmacists could play beyond just dispensing medications or even doing immunizations at that point in time. And we started talking about these CLIA wave tests. And that's when it kind of hit me that there was this whole area of tools that pharmacists could be using uh, in their practice to provide care to patients. And why pharmacists? Why pharmacies? Because every year there are billions of visits to pharmacies. Uh, pharmacies are the most accessible uh, you know, healthcare provider uh, in the United States dwarfing all other providers together with respect to annual visits. And patients come there when they're sick. They come to pharmacies when they're feeling well. Uh, they come to pharmacies when they're looking for guidance and information. And so it just made sense 
that putting these types of resources that would help patients make medical decisions or get care quicker for things, again, going back to influenza, where you have a narrow window uh, in which to um, implement treatment. It just made sense. And that's kind of why we started going down this road. Great. Thanks, Mike. I, I like the part. I mean, it's clear that 90% of the population lives within five miles of a pharmacy. And when you dig into a community pharmacy specifically, uh, I think it's 77% uh, of independent community pharmacies operate in populations of less than 50,000. So when you think, how can we reach these uh, medically underserved and rural populations, there's no one better suited than, than a community pharmacy. So it, it makes clear sense that we, we are positioned as, as pharmacists and, and community, pharmacy, community pharmacies to reach those that are hard to reach. And I, I think that's uh, the convenience. I know you both have done research to show, um, you know, not everybody has a primary care doc. Uh, not, a bit, not everybody has convenient access to care. You don't choose when you're gonna come down with flu or strep or COVID symptoms, right? So you're gonna go to get tested at, you know, seven o'clock on a Friday night. Um, are you gonna go to the ER? Are you gonna go to the urgent care? Um, a much higher level of care that's needed. And chances are, you know, if you go in to get tested or if you go in with those symptoms, are you even gonna get tested? So I know there's an antimicrobial stewardship uh, aspect to this. Um, you wanna talk about the convenience uh, factors that you've come across in your research, not only convenience, but uh, um, total cost of care and, and some of those angles? John, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, so Jason, you're, you, I mean, you're, now, you're, now you're speaking to my heart here, right? I mean, that's what this is about. And look, if, you, if somebody has a great relationship and great access to a primary care provider, you know, this is not saying it's pharmacy only. This is saying, hey, as supplement to and for those individuals, and I, I'm way too old to admit this, but I, I have to put myself among that group that doesn't have a primary care provider. Um, you know, I also live in the state of Nebraska. Uh, there are large stretches and large you know, parts of our state where there just aren't primary care providers, where there just isn't that access. And so if we can begin to provide um, available care in communities that wouldn't otherwise have it, that's a win. I mean, you know, for everything we talk about, you know, time to first dose matters, right? If we can, if we can identify early and change the course of disease, we can reduce overall cost of care. And, you know, I think Jason, you and Mike have both heard me say this. One of the things that bothers me most in this world is driving down an interstate and seeing a billboard that says, you know, ER with a five minute wait time, as if somebody should be using that as a convenient care. That's a terribly in, inefficient use of resources in our healthcare system. So if we can, if we can get a patient to go to a pharmacy and get the same test, get the same treatment, in the same amount of time or less and, and reserve the, you know, at, at one tenth or less the cost and reserve those ER resources for, you know, for true emergencies, that's a win for us as a system. And so I think that to me becomes the driving force for, for the business case or the business model for pharmacy-based testing. You know, it's, it's, Let's get access. Let's get people care when they couldn't get it otherwise. I'll share a story from some of our one of our earliest projects. And actually, I think we might have worked together with you on this, Jason. We were working in in Minnesota, among other states at the time, in a, in a rural northern Minnesota community where there was an in home daycare provider. And this was on a Saturday, and she came into her farm uh, into her pharmacy and said, "Hey, look, you know, my husband tested positive for strep throat." Um, I don't know what, you know, I, I've got a sore throat. There's no physician office open. There's no other access to care in the community. If I wait to Monday, the daycare is closed. Well, she was able to get tested. She tested positive, was prescribed or dispensed an antibiotic and was able, you know, to get started on that course and open on Monday morning. And I think that, you know, is that the, you know, is that uh, the greatest medical miracle of all time? Probably no. But is that a demonstration of value? Absolutely. Yeah. And an impact on a community. Well, and, and along with that, the satisfaction then is very high. You know, they came in because they had this illness and they were able to walk out with an answer and something for it. But even when we found that the patients 
let's say this woman did not have a sore throat. We found that even then the pharmacist can take them over to the over-the-counter medications and right. you know talk to them about remedies. And so satisfaction is still high. And Jason, you meant that stewardship, mentioned that stewardship component. You know, unfortunately, historically, you know, adults who come into the doctor's office with a sore throat are prescribed antibiotics over 60% of the time. But only five to 15% of those uh, sore throats are actually caused by bacteria that should receive um, an antibiotic. Uh, when the pharmacy gets involved in these type of disease management services, you know, we've seen a much better utilization rate with antibiotics. You know, we're only prescribing or dispensing antibiotics about 18% of the time. And that's as a result of a positive test uh, following a clinical workup. So it's a much more, um, you know, stewardship friendly approach uh, to the use of antibiotics in these types of settings. That's a really good point, Mike. So it's, it's almost like a, a double-edged public health advantage, right? The accessibility of community pharmacies and the positive uh, positive movement on the antibiotic antibiotic stewardship front. That's that's really cool. Uh, one thing that was mentioned, I, th I think you mentioned it, Mike, was uh, satisfaction. But I think it's not only satisfaction by the patient or the customer, but also by the pharmacist that that is able to test. Um, you know, they have the clear waiver. They they probably have a, a CPA or they're in a state that has a statewide protocol uh, that allows them to do test and treat. And when they, when they provide that treatment, follow up a few days later and the patient says, gosh, I feel so much better. Thank you for, you know, making this a very convenient and enjoyable experience, but also helping me feel better and helping me improve my health. And I think that goes a really long way with our pharmacist provider, you know, slash clinicians uh, and seeing that the work that they're doing is actually making, having a direct impact on a patient's life. And, and Jason, to, to build upon that, that's one of the things that we try to um, recommend that pharmacists do is close that loop, close that encounter. So it doesn't end when that patient leaves your pharmacy, whether they leave with an antibiotic or no antibiotic, you know, give them a call 24 to 48 hours later just to see how things are going. And that, again, drives the satisfaction, showing that the pharmacist cares. Uh, you know, these are things that pharmacists you know, do frequently is give patients calls. And this has been one of the greatest services because nobody gets that follow-up call from the emergency department uh, to see how their sore throat's doing. Great. Well, do. Oh, go ahead, Don. No, I, I do. They call me. <laughs> <laughs> they call you and say, please stay out. Yeah, never come back here again. Got it. <laughs> well, let's dig into some other more recent research that you guys have done. Um, you recently published research that showed that CLIA certificates increased 45% between 2015 and 2020, with a significant amount of the increase between 2019 and 2020. Uh, can, wh why, you know, the big jump? And, uh, you know, where does that put us on the map? Can somebody talk about, you know, where we're at in our journey to get community pharmacies or pharmacies in general on the, the CLIA waiver um, area? Yeah, I'm going to let Don answer that before I do. I want to just kind of set a little bit at the table. I mentioned that we've been doing work in this area since about 2007. And when we first started approaching pharmacists about doing this type of things, like with an influenza test or a strep test, they would just look at you like, you've you got three heads. You know, this is something that is totally crazy. You know, but then again, you think about it, you, you know, they were doing cholesterol levels, you know, in a lot of these same stores that we'd go to. And maybe they just didn't make the connection about what they were doing. Um, but even early on, some of these sites had CLIA waivers, but they weren't using them for anything. And Don, you can jump in now with the data after I told my cute little story. Yeah. So, so yeah, Jason, I mean, so I think, you know, round numbers, what do we have? About 60,000 community pharmacies in the U.S., you know, give or take, um, as you mentioned, you know, relatively close. So, I mean, even for, you know, even five years ago, you know, you were talking probably 10,000 pharmacies with these certificates of waiver, um, you know, that were laboratories that were doing some time, some type of testing. Now, how much they were doing, how often, what they were doing um, probably varied. Some probably didn't even know they still had it and were, you know, and it just sat there, you know, or they got something, you know, and certainly, you know, Mike and I and, and you and, and a whole a whole host of others have kind of been out there, you know, trying to spread the word, preach the gospel, you know, Johnny Appleseed, uh, you know, trying to spread the seeds over the last decade. 
sometimes meeting with resistance. And I think some of that resistance was regulatory. Some of that was that there were states that prior to 2020, there just wasn't an opportunity to get a foothold. You know, if I think I, and I've done some work in the state of New York and, and there was no, no bones about it, uh, restrictions that would make it very, very difficult for most pharmacies to establish themselves as a lab. Primarily, a pharmacist could not serve as a laboratory director, even for a ClioWave lab. So, you know, so what happened in 2020? Why, why the difference? Obviously, you know, the one word answer is COVID, but, but it's a little more nuanced than that. You know, I would like to think part of it is that word that, that we had been spreading in the work we had been doing and others had been doing with the pharmacies and with the chains and, and getting out and talking about it. Um, that when it came time, when COVID tests became available, there was a recognition in, you know, and I think it played out in, in, the, in the guidance from the Assistant Secretary for Health that came out and said, pharmacists are, are an accessible resource. They will help in our national testing program. They will help us in screening. Therefore, we're going we're gonna to wipe the slate clean. We're going to say at a federal level, all pharmacies in all states have the ability to, to do this and you know, really kind of lowered that bar to make it uh, operational for pharmacies in, in places that just wouldn't have. But what it, you know, it all, what it do as well, it also raised the profile. It raised the profile amongst patients and, and pharmacists. And so people who, who were maybe reluctant were now getting asked, hey, are you doing testing? And then shortly thereafter, when, and certainly as you know, when CMS came out and said, hey, not only are we encouraging pharmacists to do testing, we're going to provide a mechanism um, as an independent clinical lab to reimburse you. And so now, you know, all of a sudden with the stroke of a pen, two of the greatest barriers are out of the way. And I, so I'm, you know, my biggest fear is always the barriers go down and nobody steps through the door, right? Nobody, nobody picks up the gauntlet. And what did we see happen? As you mentioned, uh, a significant increase in the number of pharmacies setting up as labs. Think about this in the middle of a pandemic. So all of a sudden now we're up to, you know, to 25% of the pharmacies, 15,000 or so right. uh, pharmacies that are doing this. I will tell you that number would, would have been higher if we had had greater accessibility to tests right. at certain points during the pandemic. I mean, that became kind of a, a rate limiter. There were pharma, I, I, I know, and I'm sure you all know, pharmacists that were trying, wanted to do testing and just didn't have access to, to, the, to the equipment. And, um, you know, so, so here's my plea as we go forward. Right. And, and I think, you know, Mike mentioned H1N1 and, and some of our earliest work here it's really hard to set something like this up in the middle of a pandemic or crisis. If, if you'd had the platform, if you'd had the tests, if you'd had the capability, what could we have done differently in this pandemic? What could we have done differently in screening? So um, yeah, I'm excited about where it goes. And I think the opportunities for fall of 21 and going forward um, are exciting. You know, so the future is now. Go ahead, Mike. But by the same token, this could have been a lot worse. Uh, or we might not have been at the table had it not been for a lot of the work that I think that, you know, we had been involved with and Jason and others, because, you know, since 2015, um, I think that, you know, all of us here have been involved with the um, certificate training program for pharmacists through point of care. And part of that program exposed pharmacists or exposed the idea of point of care testing in pharmacies uh, to these folks. So not only had you know a great good chunk of pharmacy profession now you know had been exposed to that and had that idea in their head, but also public health folks and other folks knew about it. And so then when it came time, you know, to to look for help, you know, they knew that pharmacists had been working on this. You know, I would have hated to have somebody come up to us back in uh, 2007 and say, "Hey, could you guys do this?" Because, oh my gosh, it would have been an ugly mess. Because the first group of pharmacists that we, you know, tried to train for some of these tests, you know, they had vaccinated 
thousands of people, sharp objects, sticking people all day, no problem. You put a Q-tip in their hand and their hand starts to shake, you know, but we kind of went through all of that. And now we've trained, you know, thousands of pharmacists nationwide, you know, with these type of programs, not only how to collect specimens and run tests, but how to offer services. So this could have been so much worse uh, or pharmacists may not have been asked to come to the table at all. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely good parts of the story and there's other parts of the story that need a little bit more motivation, right? I mean, you've talked about, okay, pharmacy awareness was given a fast track during COVID, largely you know, impacting the number of clear waivers. We talked about, yeah, shoot, I can't get the test. So am I gonna go through and get the clear waiver? Well, my advice has always been get it, right? Be ready for it. And then the test will eventually be available. But I absolutely agree with you, Don, that it had an impact on people's motivation. If Why am I gonna hurry up and get the clear waivers if I'm gonna sit, away, sit around and wait for tests? If I don't have tests, that kind of uh, demotivates uh, you know, my, my, my uh, you know, drive for this, right? So is it enough, right? We, we have had a dramatic increase. Um, 45% is, is dramatic, right? But is it enough to, to reach critical mass? And I, I know we can't predict this, and we've seen, I've seen a handful of states uh, just in the past several months come on board uh, and adopt legislation that gives, you know, that promotes these privileges long-term, which is great. We wanna see that across the board. Uh, but if you had to give your prediction um, are we there? Do we have to do, I mean, I mean, what can we do to continue to drive this forward momentum? You know, first off, don't forget about immunizations. Don't forget how long it took to go from a concept of administering an immunization in a pharmacy to get all 50 states uh, to allow pharmacists to provide immunizations. It took over two decades, you know, to get to that point. You know, the trajectory, I think, where we're going, you know, with with, with this is better than where we were for there. I think that in the states where this is allowable, uh, you're gonna see really good things. And I think that uh, you're likely going to have pressure put on some of the other states um, you know, to do this. And already early in the pandemic, um, all the major pharmacy organizations and some of the minor pharmacy organizations came out in favor of pharmacists doing these types of uh, clear wave tests, uh, promoting their use, calling for change. Um, man, that didn't happen this early on in immunizations. Uh, so I'll let Don go with the prediction. Um, but for me, I'll just leave it with some of those facts. Great. Yeah. Uh, so I, my, my crystal ball's in the shop, so I'm just going to, I'm going to wing it. Yeah, I think it's, are we where we want to be? No. Are we on the right road? Yes. Will there be potholes in the road? Absolutely. You know, I, like if pharmacy stops and says, okay, great, we got through the pandemic all as well. We had, you know, this was this was a nice opportunity, you know, to step in as a, in a public health crisis. And, um, you know, we're willing to go back to, you know, to the way we were. It'll go back to the way it was. Right. I mean, this is the opportunity is now the opportunity is for pharmacists who got into this for COVID testing to say, well, if I can test for COVID, why can't I test and treat for influenza or group A strep or, right. or whatever or whatever? Right. And why is this only allowed during a pandemic? Because if we, if we stop now, if we say, okay, it was fine during a pandemic, you know, some of these things will get rolled back. Some of the regulation, regulatory barriers, the, the ability for pharmacy to get reimbursed, you know, these are all as it stands now, um, you know, directed health measures in, in the middle of the pandemic. Right. So it, you're, you know, it, it's, you're kind of on that teetering edge right. and it could go either way, but if you sit back in our passive, it, it, it could recede. I mean, and so that's why, you know, to anybody who's listening, if you're excited about this, be excited about this, you know, talk to your, you know, make sure your state legislator knows, make sure your state association knows, right. your board of pharmacy knows, you know, that this is, this is pharmacy. And I mean, I, I, I'll speak. So if there's any educators out there, we are, we are training up our students to do this and have been for, for, you know, the decade plus that I've been in this um, in pharmacy education, 
We just now need to give them the path to take advantage of this. As I think you said earlier, Jason, when a pharmacist impacts a patient and sees, you know, that direct impact on, on testing and treating, that's that warm, fuzzy feeling I, I, I think most are looking for. And so here's the opportunity. You've just right. got, you got to take advantage. Well, it's, yeah. it's easy to step back and say, oh, I, I'm busy doing other things. You know, I'm too busy. My workflow or I don't get paid. It's work. You got to do it. You got to put the time in. Well, and, and it's not going to be, I don't think, other people, you know, saying we don't want it from you anymore. It's going to be the pharmacists, you know, that are going to make that decision because we've had so many people come to us for a variety of things. Hey, we do hep C testing. We do lead testing, serum lead testing in patients in Flint. Uh, will you help us with HIV testing? You know, so the, the desire is there to utilize pharmacists. We've also seen during the pandemic, an access problem for other providers. So patients with chronic diseases, uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, not being able to, to see their providers, not be able to go to labs. Right. We know there are clear way platforms to allow pharmacists to be doing these type of tests in pharmacies. So this has opened up more of a case, even stronger case uh, for some of these other things besides just uh, the acute illnesses, you know, like COVID influenza and strep. For this sure. has really opened the door for pharmacies now to develop full disease management programs that are, you know, based on some of these CLIA waived uh, platforms. Uh, and I think it's an exciting thing. And if you don't think that those are out there, you know, look at some of the funding opportunities, you know, that have been out there. Uh, NACHO had a, um, a funding opportunity, you know, over the you know, couple months ago to an STI treatment. Uh, diagnosis and treatment of pharmacies. Uh, there's chronic disease management grants from the CDC and pharmacies for hypertension and dyslipidemia. Uh, there's a variety of things out there. And again, as Don mentioned, we just have to step through the door. And the pandemic has, I think, given a, a great opportunity to take advantage. And, you know, Don always says he hates to waste a good pandemic. So, um, it's, it's a great, that, and he also likes to say, if he has a hammer, go ahead and beat things with it. Isn't that the one? I think I, I say something slightly different, but no, <laughs> hey, this is fantastic. I've been waiting to push back on Mike on something he said. <laughs> it, while I agree, this has opened up a wave of opportunities for pharmacy. I think this is a wave that could crush a lot of, you know, could put a lot of pharmacists on what, what do I do? What's next? How do I do this? I, I think one of the things that we certainly heard pre-pandemic, but even probably louder during the pandemic is, yeah, I'm excited. I want to do this. But how? Right. What you know, what is how do I stand something like this up? How do I in the middle of doing everything else I have to do in my pharmacy? How do I develop a service like like this? And it's not about the right people understand the clinical benefits. That's not that again is not the issue. It's it's how do I how do I get billed? How do I how do I track the data? You know, how do I how do I do all of the things that I need to do in terms of workflow to do this well? And so that's where I see opportunities right. for academics. I see opportunities for I, I, companies of, uh, uh, who do such things that could help pharmacies go. Most pharmacies are looking for a turnkey solution. If you can provide them a turnkey solution and demonstrate the value, use technicians. A much easier sell. Use technicians. Use every resource at your disposal. I mean, make it make it profitable. Uh, I mean, you know that you know as well as I do. And if somebody says it's just me, the pharmacist having to swab everybody's nose, good grief! I don't want Jason swabbing people's nose. He's an expensive Q-tip holder. You know, there's people that, you know, use your education and training appropriately. And I think that's another thing. Oh, my gosh, I can't tell you how many times you walk into a pharmacy and you still see the pharmacist sticking people with sharp objects. It's like ah, my, my three year old can inoculate themselves. I put the syringe on the couch and just let them jump on it. Uh, you know, so just don't get into a turf battle within our own profession. You know, utilize things that make sense. 
So, so Mike, that's a good point. You, I know you have done some uh, what, time in motion and workflow studies. What percentage of the time does the pharmacist need to be involved? Is, isn't it a minority of uh, the patient vis- visit? How long does, and how long does that patient visit typically last? So the patient visit, and I'll let Don again talk about the numbers so I don't totally misquote the, the data, but you know, from beginning to end, you can get a patient in and through a system in less than 30 minutes. And I know that you know, a number of uh, uh, pharmacy chains and pharmacy organizations, you know, that's their goal. Patient presents, you know, do the intake form, you do the uh, physical assessment, collect vital signs, run the test, um, and hopefully get them through that whole process within 30 minutes. Um, because we've got the workflow down in the pharmacy in terms of, you know, processing orders. Uh, in terms of how much time the pharmacist has to be involved, you're right, it's very small. You know, pharmacist doesn't need to be involved with paperwork. Pharmacist, you know, legally doesn't have to be involved with, you know, swabbing or running the test. It's the interpretation of the test and deciding if, you know, the treatment's there that, you know, maybe the pharmacist has to be involved. And so that really takes it down to minutes, uh, you know, out of that 30 minute time frame. you know, so, you know, in terms of overall percent down, what do you think? Oh, I mean, the pharmacist, pharmacist commitment is five minutes or less. So, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% of the time, you know, so you, you can move people through. And I will say that our time in motion studies are, are probably um, a little dated. There's probably more that the technician could be doing today. Certainly some of the, sure. some of that regulatory barrier has, has opened things up for, for technicians as well. Um, but that, I mean, that just shows you, right. This, this can be a very profitable business. I mean, I'm not getting into pricing, but these tests are not expensive, right? We've seen very successful cash model, um, you know, programs. I mean, I'm partial to the medical building space, right? Because I want to see pharmacists get recognized as providers on the medical benefit side. And the more volume we get and the more traction we get on the medical benefit side, the more the medical payers are like, oh yeah, pharmacists, we are a valid provider of these services. Uh, without that traction, it, you know, we have a steeper hill to climb, whether it's contracting, uh, just general awareness uh, of our practice as a, uh, a provider. Uh, but, you know, the cash model works, too. I've talked to people, you know, who have a very successful cash model business. And why does it work? Because staffing is not that expensive for this. The tests are not that expensive. And people appreciate the convenience of being able to come into a single location and getting a positive or negative test and walking away with a prescription if they have a positive test. Uh, talk to me more about your opinions on, on you know, the cash model and the profitability and, and where you see medical, ben- uh, medical billing going. So, I, I mean, Jason, you're, 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 you're preaching to the choir here, right? I mean, I think if you demonstrate value and show value, patients will pay. I mean, I, I think the, the, the most obvious example we're going to see over the next six to 12 months is, is COVID screening tests, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many football stadiums and airports and whatnot are going to require a negative test prior to boarding, right? So now we're not, now we're not even talking about symptomatic people. And guess what? No insurance company is going to pay for it because it's not a medical service. It's a screening service. It's a cash-based business. And I will tell you, if, if, if once you set it up as a cash pay versus cash pay, pharmacy looks really good compared to almost any other venue, right? Particularly if, if we utilize the resources efficiently. So, I mean, I think, you know, there, if you want the gateway to get you in and set up and subsidize your cash pay model, absolutely. Now turn that over and, and think about it. I mean, I, I'll speak entirely for myself. You know, we were getting ready to go on a vacation uh, I, I know I have allergies every year, but I had, you know, I had a little runny nose and a little bit of a sore throat. And I thought, ah, I should probably get tested before I go. Was it worth $50 to me to do that? Absolutely. You know, absolutely out of, out of pocket. Now, is the goal, what, if you get a bunch of patients demanding it, guess what? Employer groups, insurance companies are, are going are gonna to come on board. Right. But no self-respecting payer is going to is going to take you on and start paying you just because you want to. 
right? You're going to have to demonstrate some value to it's, them. It's the whole immunization thing, right, Dan? Isn't that well, the way yeah. you I mean, it, you know, there's a little be careful what you wish for. I think there are probably some pharmacists who would love to go back to the days of being able to, to get cash prices for immunizations. Um, but you set yourself up, right? I mean, you, you establish a, a model where, again, you demonstrate the value, um, both clinically and economically. And it, we're, we're, we're there, right? I mean, it's there. And, and you know, Jason, to, the, to circle back a few, it, we got to get to that tipping point. We've got to get to that critical mass where where the patient can expect to walk in a pharmacy and receive this this care or this service if we're going you know if we're going to stand it up as a, as a billable model and, that, and that's that's the key thing i mean they can't walk in and go hey do you offer this and you say no because all of a sudden the convenience is gone they need right. to walk in and say hey i'd like to get tested and you have it you know they're ready to go and so you're right and it's you know 100 you know it should be an expected service you know, in a pharmacy. And I like the fact, you know, as you were talking, um, you were talking about demonstrating the value of, you know, the pharmacist and the pharmacy. Um, not once do you say demonstrate the value of the health economist, because um, everybody knows there is no value. They've, they've already demonstrated their value. <laughs> <laughs> their society's greatest gift. Mm. Well, this, this, is a, this has been a great conversation. You know, thinking about the post-pandemic world, um, you know, be, it's easy, right? We've gotten, you know, momentum, we've gotten public awareness through COVID, we've gotten pharmacy awareness through COVID. How do we keep that momentum going? And, and perhaps it is like, I think, Mike, you were saying, it's not just COVID, flu and strep. I mean, there's so much more in this world. And I think pharmacies that are, you know, a call out to our friends at NCPA, uh, you go to NCPA's website on point of care testing, they say, Point of care testing is the next, uh, if not bigger than immunizations when you think about a clinical revenue model. So how do we keep that momentum going? Is it more education to the public? Is it more education to the pharmacies? Hey, you can do this. Look at all these different diagnostic tests, but also chronic care management, A1Cs, cholesterol lipid panel. And I even know you're doing some really innovative stuff, Mike, even the, taking blood draws and, and you know doing like Chem7 and metabolic panels. And I mean, the world is our oyster. How do we get the word out? How do we get uh, more pharmacies up to, you know, uh, at the table? And how do we continue to drive public awareness that this is something they can get at a pharmacy? Well, one thing, you know, I, I think that there's some pharmacists out there that wonder if they missed the boat. You know, oh man, last year was my opportunity to get on board. Now this pandemic has kind of run its course. No, this pandemic hasn't. This this fall is probably going to be a better opportunity because a lot of the models that got set up last year were not necessarily running a test in the pharmacy, like Don mentioned, because there was a lack of equipment uh, and lack of tests. A lot of pharmacies served as uh, specimen collection points. This year, uh, I think there's a greater ability uh, to get involved with the screening, like Don mentioned. In addition, uh, now that people are, you know, back out and being dirty, uh, like they used to, and quit wearing masks and whatever, you're going to see a lot of influenza. You're also already seeing a lot of RSV. So the um, ability to do other testing this fall is going to be huge. You know, whether it's, you know, a combo COVID um, RSV influenza, those are going to be really, really needed this fall because you can't tell one versus the other just based on symptoms. So it's a great time to still, um, you know, take advantage, you know, of this and use this to, um, you know, get your feet wet. And I think then off of that, you know, that opens the doors for other opportunities and, and, and Don, you know, what do you think in terms of long-term, how do you, um, you know, leverage this fall, which I think is a great opportunity to continue on the services. Yeah, no, I, like, I, I agree. And I, I think I'll go back to something I, I said um, a few minutes ago. Somebody needs to help the pharmacist identify what to do today, but also what's next, mm -hmm. right? And give them that platform, whether it's for billing or whether it's for, for tracking and documenting, but even probably, you know, hey, have you thought of this, right? And, and an a la carte menu for what works for them. I absolutely agree. This is going to be a year for upper respiratory 
infections, right? Whether it's, you know, the combination of COVID, influenza, RSV. And once you're established, then my hope is you're saying, now what's next? You know, I've had this person in, they, you know, all of the research that we've ever seen shows that once a pharmacist actually interacts with a patient, puts hands on, whether it's immunization or that, that patient is is their new best friend. They trust them. They're going to take their recommendation. So now if you say, hey, maybe you should come back and, and let's go ahead and start regularly monitoring your cholesterol or um, you know some of these other blood draws that Mike is, is talking about, it just opens up the gateway. Right. It opens up you know, the pharmacy as a as a point of service for all of these other things. I just, I think the challenge is going to be giving the, giving the average, very, very busy pharmacist, the tools to not have to reinvent the wheel, to not have to do this on their own, to not think I need to, I need to talk to my, you know, to the state board and I need to, I need to develop a collaborative practice agreement or, or whatever it is, but here it is. Here's that turnkey solution. And you know what? Maybe it doesn't fit your patient profile. Maybe it doesn't fit your your customer base, but maybe this does. And that's why I, I, it's hard for me to say, right. here's you know, here's the next big thing. This is what every pharmacy needs to be doing. But I think if you give them that foundation and then allow them to tailor to their to their patients, the people they know best, um, I think that's when we get success. And then you know it's it's always easier to be incremental. It's always easier to add another service that is related, particularly if you have a platform that allows you to just, you know, to get another cartridge or another analyte or another whatever. Um, it opens it up. Mike, I know you're itching to, to say something. Go. No, no. I was just going to say, you know, prior to the pandemic, you know, that definitely was a challenge. But the other part of the challenge was educating the public and legislatures and public health that pharmacists could do this. Hey, guess what? Uh, that job's done. I don't know if you could find a person now that could with a straight face tell you that they didn't know that a pharmacist could run a COVID test. You know, so the fact that now they know that they could go there, half the work's done. I mean, there, that awareness is there and now just got to capitalize and run with it. Uh, can, I, can I add a story on this? So 15 months ago, when, when testing was starting to come up, I said, hey, you know, pharmacy can do this. And there were people in central labs, there were people on at the academic medical center where I work who were like, oh, no, they can't. No, no, no. <laughs> and so now with the, you know, with the surge, unfortunately, I'm on, I'm on our pandemic calls and, and it comes up, well, where can people go for testing? Pharmacies. Are we going to do anything on, on campus? No, then just go to the pharmacy. I, so, I mean, it's amazing to Mike's point, how in, in really a year's time, the attitude has changed. For sure. It's exciting. It's an exciting opportunity. Now, again, it's about it's about grabbing that ring and, and taking advantage. And Dan, have, have your students been involved with any uh, COVID testing? Yeah, they, they, yeah they, they've done. Our, ours have as well. I mean, you know, before this, they weren't getting that real life experience. So you would talk to them about this and they wouldn't see it. Now our students have, holy cow, they've done thousands of COVID tests. You know, they get it. They know it. They're on board. Uh, and so, you know, again, I hate to you know, say something good came out of the pandemic, but it did because the students see it now and they're excited as I'll get out. Um, yeah. So we got a whole generation now coming on, you know, itching to go. I think that paints a good future picture for us too, right? I mean, students are graduating hungry for, for this type of service and, and understand the accessibility of pharmacies and the role that they can play. So I think that's only going to help us from an advocacy standpoint to make sure that those barriers don't have to come back up, right? And in the last few minutes, guys, I I think maybe just leave the audience with one parting thought, and I'll start with mine. And uh, it's really about, you know, you don't have to be alone. Not only is it never too late to get a CLIA waiver, uh, you can find a partner. Um, You know, I'm biased, you know, I work for FDS Amplicare, but you can find a partner that really can help you through all this process, help you get your CLIA waiver, help you get your um, what clinical lab PTAN um, that's required for CMS billing, help you with education and really walk you through the medical billing process. Because at the end of the day, I, I really push us to get recognized as providers 
And the best way to do that is to really ramp up that volume on the medical payer side and show them that we are uh, a legitimate uh, provider of these services. Uh, but don't try to do it alone. I mean, there's people here to help you. Um, and, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to us. We will get you across the line. Don or Mike, do you want to leave any parting thoughts? Jason, I, th I think you really did a nice job of, of summarizing it. I mean, I think if not now, when is where I would leave it. I mean, this is, you know, I hope to be able to look back in, you know, at the end of my career in, in 20 years and say, hey, remember 2020, 2021, when this was an oddity, when this was unique. This is the time, right? This is the time to, to move these types of services forward um, to, to really expand the role of the pharmacist and, and change people's perception. This is the time. And so um, you're, you're right. There are, there are folks out there able to help. I would put myself in that category and Mike, and um, you know, we continue to cheerlead. We continue to do what we can. And, you know, we just want to see this move forward because it's the right thing to do for patients and for for health. I mean, it's just this is for me as a health economist, this is an obvious thing to, to be doing. And, and it's the right thing to do for the profession. I mean, you know, I look at where my graduates are going and the majority of them are going into community practice and a lot of them are going, OK, what do we do now? Where is the next? Where's the clinical service that we can be providing uh, in the outpatient setting, in the community setting? And this is giving them an opportunity to put their education into practice. And this is what it's a very forward facing opportunity. And I think that's what the profession needs to continue to thrive uh, going forward. Well, thanks, guys. Hey, it's always fun to get together and and uh, preach to the choir, right? I, I think we all are very aligned on on how we what we need to do to move this forward, and very passionate about moving it forward. So, I just want to say thanks, Todd, for having us on board today. Absolutely, I love listening to educated uh, pharmacists and um, medical providers and professionals who understand where healthcare needs to go. We need to get pharmacists more involved. They're um, more than educated to do so. And pharmacy owners have an opportunity to engage their community, use these immunizations as education sessions uh, for their community, reach out to your school districts, reach out to your small employers, but let them know that you are empowering them through healthcare and that you should become a healthcare destination. Um, every community pharmacy uh, has an opportunity opportunity to do that. Please reach out to Jason and the Amplicare team. We will have links in the show notes to get a hold of them. And I want to give a big shout out to Amplicare and your team for being a, a great partner of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And a special thank you to um, to Don and Michael. Really appreciated your insights today, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Yep, thank you. Thanks, Todd. Yeah.